If you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 9. We want to pick up our study in verse 26 through verse 43. We want to look again, the salvation of Saul. And we're looking at part two here this morning. We shared last week in the beginning of the book of Acts chapter 9 that God prepares the heart for salvation. He sends the Holy Spirit uh, to bring conviction to our hearts. The Holy Spirit pricks our hearts. We have witnessed this in Saul of Tarsus, an evil man. Uh, a man considered himself spiritual, uh, yet he was a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee. Uh, he spoke about being of the tribe of Benjamin. They were the fighters in Israel. He was part of the 71 elect of Israel uh, that ruled in Israel there. They were called the Sanhedrin. Uh, what's interesting about Saul of Tarsus, uh, there in Tarsus was one of the great learning centers, the intellectual center uh, of the Roman Empire. And there he studied under a man called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel basically was considered uh, the doctor of the law. We're told in the historical writings that Saul of Tarsus was one of his top students. Yet he did not believe in the Messiah. That is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so that's the issue that's going on here. But I want you to see this. We even see our own lives. If God reaches out to Saul of Tarsus, what about us? And he has reached out to us. We're sinners just like him. We need a Savior just like Him. The Holy Spirit comes and pricks my heart. The Holy Spirit came and He pricked your heart. The message comes forth and eventually you're going to respond. This is what's happened to Saul. Now just to encourage our own hearts, we see this man of evil and we can tell that he was a man of evil because they're fearful of him. Ananias that was told there in Damascus, I'm going to send him to you. When he comes to you, pray for him. Lay hands on him. And I'm going to restore his sight. Lord, he's going to see me. Then he's going to capture me. He's going to take me back, you know, to Jerusalem. Because that's exactly uh, what Saul of Tarsus did. He was evil. He thought he was doing the right thing. Letters in hand. I'm going to Damascus. I'm going to bring back Christian. He had already consented uh, to the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. But now he comes back to Jerusalem after spending three years in Arabia. And you're going to see something interesting. The guys in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John, uh, the pillars of the church, they're fearful of Paul, which we call Saul of Tarsus at this time. His name does not change until we get to the book of Acts chapter 13. And so there's times I change the names around as Saul and, and Paul, but it, it's going to be Paul the Apostle. This is his heathen name when you think about it, which is his Hebrew name, excuse me. Uh, but he was a heathen. And he comes to saving grace. I'm, I'm never tired of the story of King Saul because if God can work in a man's heart like Saul, he can work in my heart. He can work in your heart. And look at the hearts that he's worked in uh, throughout the years. Now, I want to give you a little bit of description. When you go to the historical writings, they give you a little bit of background uh, concerning Saul of Tarsus, what he might have looked like. And Mark was telling me this morning, if I've been watching uh, the program that they have on Sunday nights, and they're talking about Saul, and they're talking about, uh, you know, Barnabas, and we're going to see Barnabas this morning. But in the movie, they exchange positions. Barnabas is the little ball-headed guy. And, and Saul of Tarsus is the big tall guy. That's not what the historians say. Our earliest physical description of, of Saul of Tarsus or Paul the Apostle comes from the second century Christian writings. People that wrote of Paul the Apostle, normally known as Saul of Tarsus, uh, described a small man of stature with a bald head, a hooked nose, a crooked legs, or what we call a, a bow-legged person. And we see his body structure, and I give you that. And it's important to us, but then we see a changed man. We see a man that was changed for God. And it's not about the outside appearance. And I think sometimes we get trapped with that. I look at a person, you look at a person, and I already have my point of view because of what I see. But God looks at the heart. 
God looks at the heart. Those that are coming on Wednesday night, we're studying the life of Saul, the first king of Israel, and everybody looked at him in his height. The Bible says that he was shoulder and head over everybody. And surely this has to be our new king. I mean, he's got the outward appearance, but his heart was evil. Now, he started out good, but his heart turned to evil. And then, in fact, you're going to see uh, King Saul eventually goes to the witch of Endor. He has no business there. And so always look at the heart. Two scriptures, 2 Corinthians 10.10. Paul's letters are demanding, they said, and they're forceful in the present there when he spoke in person. But when they saw him, he was weak and his speeches were worthless. They saw a nothing man. He wasn't this tyrant. God had changed his life. Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 describe it even better. You remember that I was sick, Paul says, when I first brought you the good news, even though my condition attempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and you cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself, New Living Translation. Think about that. Here's this tyrant. They all know his story. But the churches in Galatia, now these are the churches of the Gentiles. They loved him. And Paul had this disorder. I can imagine that he kind of freaked people out. He had this eye disease, we're told. He had possibly the oozing of the eyes. Let me give you a scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 10. And, and we know that three times he goes to the Lord. Lord, uh, heal this infirmity of mine. Uh, again, it's believed that he had an eye disease. And the Lord says, Paul, my grace is sufficient to thee. You know, sometimes God allows things in my life and God allows things in your life. I'm reminded of Jacob. Remember in the Old Testament, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And he would not let go of the angel of the Lord. And he wrestled with him all, all night long. And here comes the sunrise. And then the angel of the Lord says, you've got to let me go. Now, I find that interesting. The angel of the Lord could have toasted him. I mean, he could have wiped him out. But he says, you need to let me go. But something interesting about Jacob. Uh, he touched the hollow of his, of his thigh. Uh, that's what the scripture says the angel did. And for the rest of his life, he walked with a slight limp to remind him. And sometimes the infirmities that we have, sometimes the trials we go through, is to remind us of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. God had his hand upon uh, Saul of Tarsus. And he changed him. It transformed him. And so let's get in this uh, last portion of the born again Saul. Now he returns to Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. First, the learners of Christ, the students of Christ. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. We shared last week in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that Saul of Tarsus was in Arabia, and there for three years the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the power of the Holy Spirit were teaching Saul. He had to have this transformation uh, coming from Judaism and now coming into Christianity. He becomes a completed Jew, but he needed to know about the Messiah, and I believe that's what he was being taught. That Jesus Christ uh, is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. The Savior of the world. That he is deity. That he is deity. And that's where the battle is today. People think that Jesus is a good humanitarian. Jesus is somebody to have around for a healing. Jesus is somebody around to feed 5,000. And so we look to him many times as a miracle worker. And yes, he does those things, but he is the son of God, the savior of the world. John chapter one develops it completely that he is the Messiah. But you have to understand at this point 
There is so much concern about him. There's so much mistrust about him. There's so much fear about him. There's so much unbelief about him. And these were the disciples. Now when we get to the apostles, the same thing. And so look at verse 27 now. But Barnabas, he comes into the picture now. He took him and he brought him uh, to the apostles. First the disciples and now the apostles there in Jerusalem. These are the pillars of the church. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had spoken to him, speaking about Christ, and how he had preached boldly in Damascus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Barnabas is this witness now. Barnabas stands up for Saul of Tarsus. But there's still concern. Even Peter. Here's Saul of Tarsus. We describe him as a a man of short stature. I I mean, he, he really outwardly doesn't look like much. But there's fear concerning this man. There's fear and reverence towards this man. Hey, we still remember he had Stephen stoned to death. What about us? So there's a lot of caution going on at this time. Barnabas comes into the picture here. He's called the son of uh, consolation, which is also the son of encouragement. And that's exactly what he's doing here. In Acts chapter 4, later, we, we find him, Solita, or Barnabas, excuse me, but later we're going to see Paul becomes his companion uh, to Barnabas. In the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 to chapter 15. And that's where his name goes from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. We know that Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. Barnabas was also given the name Joseph of Joseph uh, back in Acts chapter 4 verse 36. But I want you to note on Barnabas. When he became a Christian back in Acts chapter 2, we know that he began to give away everything that he had. Remember, there was communal living in the early church. And so back in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, he brought all his money of, of the sale of his properties and such. Now, this was what God put in his heart. Nobody calls us to do that. It has to be from the Lord. And he gives it to the apostles. And he decides at that moment, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, there's a difference between Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. And they said, we sold it for this much, our property, and we're going to give this much. Well, they lied. And remember what Peter said, why have you lied to God? And that moment he fell over dead. The wife comes in later, Sapphira, three hours, and she lied exactly like her husband. And the same men that carried your husband out are going to carry you out. Wham! She dies. But I want you to see Barnabas. He gave from his heart. He was not forced. This morning, uh, you're never forced here at Calvary Chapel, and I never will. We're to give from a joyful heart. And we're not to give out of pressure. And I, I... i just so frustrated when I see TV preachers. God needs your money. No, he doesn't. You need God. That's the whole concept. That's another story. Look at verse 28 and 29 now. So he was with them at Jerusalem. I love that. And coming in and going out, he was going back and forth. But listen to his testimony there back in Jerusalem. This is Saul of Tarsus. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he disputed with a Hellenist Greek there in Jerusalem. And they attempted to kill him. I want you to see the background. The Hellenists uh, were Jews who spoke Greek, but not of the Greek nation. These Jews spoke the Greek language, also practiced the, the Greek customs and the cultures. And we go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. The Hellenists and the Hebrew Jews were clashing uh, concerning the complaints of the widows being neglected. And that's where the seven deacons are lifted up. And we know that Stephen is one of those deacons. Now, the Greek Hellenists, uh, they studied out of the Septuagint, uh, the Hebrew Bible translated into the Greek, and that took place around the 2nd century. 
And so now these Hellenists are so angry with this Saul of Tarsus, they want to kill him. These are uh, of Judaism, when you think about it. And they wanted him out. Well, again, there's that fear context. Look at verse 30. When the brethren found out, Peter, James, John, the pillars there in the early church, uh, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him out to Tarsus. That's interesting to me because Saul of Tarsus goes. They convinced him, you got to go, man. You're not wanted here. And in all reality, listen to this. The church in Jerusalem did not want him either. Because he was stirring up problems. He was going to cause riot conditions. And so because of their fears, listen, uh, and their mistrust of Saul, they don't trust him yet, and their uncertainties of Saul, this might be a fluke. He might be tricking us. And so notice that he was escorted to Caesarea. Now listen to this. Uh, Caesarea is a seaport about 70, 75 miles away. And there, then they he went on to Tarsus in Turkey. Now, uh, that's his hometown. So I'm sure he didn't mind it. And he had a ministry there. But this is an added 500 miles. I mean, they re- wanted to get rid of this man. They really wanted Saul out of the picture. Tarsus is Saul's hometown. At this time, Tarsus was the intellectual learning center of the Roman Empire. Saul travels in the book of Acts chapter 9. I want you to see this scenario. It took him from Jerusalem to Damascus, and then to Arabia for three years, and then back to Damascus, and then back to Jerusalem, and now uh, to Caesarea, and then to Tarsus, which is uh, we understand today as modern-day Turkey. But it's his hometown. Now we leave Saul of Tarsus here for a time. And we pick up the story in verse 31 uh, concerning Peter. And we always speak about trials. We always speak about persecutions. It's interesting to me, and it still doesn't always register. But I've experienced it, you experience it. When I go through persecution, when I go through trials, God moves in my heart. I have two choices. I can run to him or I can run from him. I can look up and say, Lord, help me through this. And he will. And sometimes I go through hard trials. Sometimes you go through hard trials. We've experienced here. Our loved ones, our our friends, our, our, you know, girls and boys. It doesn't matter. The ones that have cancer and the ones that God touches and the ones that God touches and takes them home. What's the difference? Yes, I want to be healed completely, but isn't a complete healing uh, to be go to go home to be with the Lord? And even Saul of Tarsus eventually becomes Paul the Apostle. Lord, take this infirmity from me. He asked the Lord three times and he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. And yet he goes before Nero at the end of his ministry, not once, but twice. In the first encounter with Nero, he listens to Paul the Apostle. He listens to him. But it's a second meeting, and there are scholars that believe that at this time, uh, Nero had gone berserk. He went crazy. He was burning Christians at the stake. I mean, he he had them in, in poles, and he would ride in his chariot. We're told by the historians, naked, and he would light them up. This man had was deranged. In the second meeting, he has Paul the Apostle beheaded. And so the time and the place, the persecution, trials, tribulation, hardship, they move upon my heart. They move in your heart. I don't know about you, but it brings me that much closer to God through prayer, through the Word of God, and through fellowship. See, we're, we get busy, and I sometimes kind of put God in the back burner. I sometimes get up late in the morning, or I've got things to do, and I say, Lord, I'm sorry I haven't prayed. I'll pray tonight. And you know what happens tonight. You're bone tired. Lord, I'm going to pray, and then you're gone. The enemy will do that. We need to spend time with the Lord. And so here the caption in verse 31, the church prospers. I like that. Again, persecution, 
advances the church. Verse 31. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, had peace and were edified. The word edification, built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord. Not that God's going to, you know, pounce on you, but the reverence of God. That's what the word fear is. And listen to this. In the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what happens through the trials? The persecution? They multiplied. They multiplied. I, I need to remind us again. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus said, uh, and this was a promise. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. How did they do it? It reads that they had peace. And the churches were built up in Christ. Notice they walked in the fear or the reverence of God because they were comforted. They were ministered to by the Holy Spirit. The results, the church multiplied greatly. God builds the church. But I want you to see this. It's through trials. It's through trials. If you have a Bible or if you're taking notes, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, temptations, knowing that the testing, the trials in your life uh, produces patience. And I've struggled with that word patience for years. Because listen to the translation uh, in the Greek. God is building patience. The result is he's given me strength. He's given me stamina, endurance, and he's building my character. And God is working in and through your life and in through my life, through the trials, the hardship, the pain, even sometimes through death. I did my mom and dad's funeral and it was not easy, but God gave me the strength. And I was able to minister to my families and some of you uh, do the same. Oh, it hurts. It hurts. I, I told you not too long ago, a couple months back, uh, I get up. I took a quick nap after church. I always do that. That's what happens when you're old, you know. And so uh, after the sandwich and uh, little nap, so I get up refreshed. Uh, I'm going to get me a glass of tea. And then I'm heading to the bedroom. My wife says, oh, where are you going? I, I said, I'm going to go call my mom. I caught myself because on Sunday evenings, I would call mom. Hey, Mom, how's it going? We'd have a good time. And she's been dead several years, you know, gone home to be with the Lord. But I was going to go make the call. She goes, uh, she, my wife didn't say nothing. And when I got to the bedroom, I go, uh, maybe I'm not awake yet. <laughs> but it's still there. It's still there. You see what I mean? But here's the joy of the Lord. My mom and dad and your parents or your loved ones, if they went home to be with the Lord and they knew Christ, we'll be reunited with them one day. And so death is not the ultimate. Death is everything. And we're going to live forever. That's eternity. And so the trials that had come their way. Look at verse 32 now. And the healings that always come. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to, to the saints there who dwelt in Lydda. And so Peter now, listen to this, he goes down to Joppa. We're going to see that in verse 36. A seaport on the Mediterranean. Uh, Lydda is about 10 miles from Joppa. Uh, today, Lydda is called Lod in, in Israel. Jerusalem is about 36 miles from Joppa. So we add another 10 miles or so. It gives us the idea, listen, of the gospel. And what I mean by that is the gospel is always on the move. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. I mean, look at this. The gospel, 2,000 years later has come to New Mexico, has come to the United States of America. Well, it's been here for a while, but I'm trying to give you the illustration. What God has said, and the gospel continues to grow, and it's not going to stop until the Lord comes for his church. Look at verse 33 now. There he found uh, a certain man uh, by the name of Enos, uh, who had been uh, bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. Enos, uh, this paralytic man, 
for eight years. We don't know much about him, but it's interesting to me that God uses healing. The ministry of Jesus was threefold. The same with Peter, the same with, with John, the same with Paul, all the apostles. The ministry is threefold, and the same ministry is for us. Number one, there was preaching. Preaching is always for the non-believer. Secondly, there's teaching. And teaching is always for the believer. But then you have the third aspect, preaching, teaching, and then healing. Interesting to me that God heals uh, the non-believer, and he heals the, the believer. Here's an instance we don't know. But the ten lepers, they were all healed. The Bible says only one leper came back. The grace of God will touch even the heathen body. And the purpose of the healing is so that you turn to God. Lord, thank you for the healing. And Lord, you touched me. You healed me. I'm going to serve you. We're told that Mary Magdalene had a, he was, she was a woman with seven demons. Jesus cast out the demons. Mary Magdalene never left Jesus. She held on to him. She was the first one. The day that he rose again from the tomb. They went, the ladies went to dress the body. And there's Jesus. She thought he was the, the gardener, remember? And when Jesus said to her, Mary, she heard his voice. The Bible says she grabbed the hold of him. She did not want to let him go. And so God uses, obviously, to all of us, if we're Christian this morning, he's used preaching, teaching, and he's possibly used healing in your life. I know God has touched me. I know God has touched you many times uh, in the area of healing. Look at verse 34 now. And Peter said to him, and yes, Jesus the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he rose up immediately. The power of the Holy Spirit is working in and through Peter. Peter was a simple fisherman. Peter, let's go back when he denies the Lord three times. And here's Peter now. A man of God filled with the Spirit of God. And some of you can testify this morning. There's times when the Spirit of the Lord will just speak to you. I want you to just go over there and pray for that person. And I'll tell you, it's tough because you're you're invading privacy sometimes. But if God gives you uh, the open door, take advantage of it and go and see what he says. You'd be surprised so many times they're, they're respective and they're, they're willing uh, to listen, to hear you. But you got to take that step. And so many times, I, I, I don't want to be embarrassed, Lord. I don't want to be rejected, Lord. It's not you that they're rejecting. It's Christ that they are rejecting. And so Peter, filled with the Spirit, is on the move. Uh, listen to verse 35. So all who dwelt there in Lydda and Sharon uh, saw him and they uh, turned to the Lord. That's the whole purpose. Listen to what it says. They turned to the Lord. That's what we've been reading in the testimonies, the witnesses. So this is why God does what he does. This is why God brings the trials, the tribulation, the hardship, the pain. This is why God sometimes brings a cancer. And you say, Pastor Bob, what do you mean? God uses these things. You're able to minister to others. You're able to share. Listen, this I know what you're going through because I've gone through it. And so here's Peter now, a whole different perspective. Here's the reason God uses the healings to draw others. Uh, at Lod there, or Lydda, there was also close by a place called Sharon. It's known for its flowers. Thus, we hear in the Old Testament, the Rose of Sharon. It's in this area of Mount Carmel. It's very rich and fertile landscape. Flowers, agriculture is phenomenal there. Uh, when you look from Mount Carmel, you see this whole valley. And, and it's just gorgeous. And it's just beautiful. And it's farmlands. And the Jews are tremendous in agriculture. But many believe the Battle of Armageddon will be fought 
right here in this area. It's called the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And when you look at that valley, it's a good battlefield. It's a good battlefield. We were up there on top of Mount Carmel with about 45 pastors way back in the day. And Ronnie Cohen at that time was our guide. And this military escort, about four planes, go across over our head. And I mean, they're the jets, right? And they are blistering. They're in low, coming down. And they buzzed over us. And we were like, whoa, we're here. The battle started. That's what some of the pastors thought. And Ronnie says, I, I didn't orchestrate that. I didn't, I didn't know they were going to fly over. But what an effect. I go, well, you sold me. I'll be back next year. <laughs> Good salesmanship. But notice what's happening. The paralytic man is touched. Now, uh, is he a believer? Is he not? I don't know. They didn't say. But for eight years, he was in this bed. Take up your couch. Take up your bed. Go. But God's not finished with Peter. There's a group of believers that hear about him. He's only about 12, 15 miles away. Look at this now. And he's going to go to one called Dorcas and restores her life. Is God still doing this today? Yes. We get testimonies of the Middle East. We get testimonies in third world countries. And the question always comes up, Pastor Bob, if God is raising people from the dead, what's happening in the U.S.? And I'm going to be honest with you. We haven't suffered. We haven't suffered. And we don't trust God. I'm including myself. We, we, we haven't made. We're very cushioned. Even in our United States of America, when things are down, even the people that are on welfare, they live better than people in third world countries that are poor, dirt poor. Our reliance always has to be on God. Uh, look at the story about Dorcas. I love this. Now, in verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Now, this woman, and here's her testimony, was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And so when we read scriptures like this, you go, Lord, why did you take her home then? She's such an asset to the body of Christ. She's such a servant, Lord. Uh, God had a purpose. Watch this now. And so here in verse 36, her name uh, actually means gazelle. Dorcas is her Hebrew name. Uh, Tabitha is considered her Aramaic name. But here's her testimony. She was a servant of the Lord. And here's another portion of her testimony. She was well-loved. Oh, they just loved her. Uh, she radiated Jesus from her life. And, uh, you know, we need to take heed to some of these people in the Scriptures. Lord, I want to be more like her. Lord, I want to be more like Peter. Lord, I want to be more like Saul of Tarsus. Lord, I want to be more like, and, you know, look at the Scriptures. Ladies, you know the ministry of Hannah. I just love that, that woman because she, she was a prayer woman. Remember Eli the priest? She, he thought she was drunk. But she was a woman in distress. A woman that was praying. She didn't stop. She wanted a man-child. And remember, her counterpart was always making fun of her. And yet God did that. Hannah was a woman of prayer. Notice now concerning Dorcas, in verse 37, but it happened in those days, uh, that she became ill, she became sick, and then she died. She gave up the ghost, and when they had washed her, and this was customary at the time, they laid her in the upper room. And you're going to see the widows, and that was very customary uh, in the Hebrew culture. We all do it, but in the Hebrew culture, very important that you mourn uh, for the dead. And sometimes the mourning just takes over uh, the life when you think about it. But she's up in the upper room now. She's prepared for her burial. In verse 38, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him and listened to the word, imploring or begging him not to delay in coming to them. Peter's only about 12, 15 miles. When, when they get word that Peter's there, 
and they see their dear sister Dorcas has passed away, gone home to be with the Lord, hey, go get Peter. Maybe the Lord wants to do something. Can, can you see the, uh, the ministry of faith? How it's moving uh, so beautifully? I like the word imploring him. They were begging him, please go get Peter. Then Peter arose and he went, verse 39. He went with him. And when he had come, uh, they brought him uh, to the upper room. Now notice, all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing uh, the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while he was, she was with them. Look what she's done for us, Peter. Look at the tapestries here. Look at the garments here. Look at the coverings. This was the type of woman she was. This was a servant of the Lord. She never asked for nothing. She didn't sell these things. She gave them away. And so her testimony was great. Here's something interesting. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He had a 40-day post-resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, he, his ascension, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's already been down to Sheol, and there he preached to those in captivity, and he took those that were dead in God from the time of Genesis up to the present time in the New Testament. And nobody went to heaven until Jesus ascended into heaven. And now they're all there. Did Dorcas go to heaven? The Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I find that intriguing because if she died, and she did, and she went to heaven, Peter's going to pray for her to come back to life. Can you see Jesus saying, Dorcas, I have to send you back. <laughs> Lord, no, I'm, I'm here. Leave me here. You have a work to do. You have a work to do. And so, notice what takes place here. I, I just, I, I love it. In verse 40, but Peter put them all out of the room. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning uh, to the body, she's not there. He turns to the body. He doesn't turn to Tabitha or to Dorcas. He turns to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. What does it say here? <laughs> Peter turned to the body because she is dead. She's gone home to be with the Lord. I believe she's with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8 we are confident, Paul says. The word is assurance. I have this assurance, and so do you have this assurance. And yes, well pleased, Paul says, rather to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. I'm getting up in age, and some of you are getting up in age, and we have our ailments, we have our pains, and I think when we get to heaven, those will be gone. Those will be gone. The Bible says he's going to give me a new body. You see, we cannot enter heaven with this body. Our spirit and our soul go to be with the Lord. And he gives us a new body. Now, I, I'm thinking, was Dorcas already given her new body? How long has she passed away? Or did God just make her dormant right there? I don't know the answer. I'm believing that she went home to be with the Lord. Is she in her new body? I'm believing she went home to be with the Lord. If she is in her new body, and I believe she could be, he sends her back. <laughs> Did she turn around and look at her new body and say, I'll be back? <laughs> These are my thoughts. That's where I go. Look at verse 41 now. She sits up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive, not asleep, not dead, alive, alive. That, that had to have been overwhelming. That had to have been shocking. The widows, all of a sudden, and those that were mourning, the tears stopped, or the tears continued, tears of joy. 
tears of laughter, tears of, Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory. Uh, I'm serious. They had, doesn't say, but they had to have had a, a hallelujah party right there. I mean, they were rejoicing and singing to the Lord. Uh, verse 41 again, and, and he gave her his hand. She's already sitting up, lifted her up. And when he had called the saints, the widows, he presented her alive. She's not dead. She's alive. She's alive and well. What happens? Look at verse 42. And, and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the name of the Lord. There it is again. The results of a miracle, a sign, and a wonder. The results of a healing. People come to the Lord. The results of God working in and through you. Dorcas, uh, this woman, Tabitha, she had a testimony. She had a witness. Peter, he had a witness. He had a testimony. Uh, Saul of Tarsus is beginning uh, to develop a witness and a testimony. He will soon be called Paul the Apostle. You have a witness. You have a testimony. Wherever you go. And people sooner or later, they find out about you. Hey, I heard you're going to church. Yes, I am. I heard you are uh, got this born-again experience. Yes, I do. I heard you're involved in this ministry, whatever it is. Yes, I am involved. I've known you for years. You know, you're my relative. You're my co-worker. Uh, you're, you're, I go to school with you for the last four years. I've seen change. Tell me. And your witness is there. And the door is open. I, I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in some of your lives. And isn't that the whole purpose? Don't just be content in your salvation. Don't just hoard your salvation. Don't you want others to go with you? I don't know, but when I got saved, my first thought was my family. My first thought was my mom, my dad, my brother, my sisters. I mean, I'm not going to say I went after them, but the Spirit of the Lord put me in their face constantly. My dad was stubborn. My mom was, she was believing already. I didn't know, but my mom was already believing. But she was very quiet because she feared my dad. And then I saw my dad change eventually. And that's the power of God. Let me share this, how radical it was. My dad would share with anybody after. Uh, he'd go to the store and he'd start passing out tracks. Uh, he'd go to the, the aisle. And we see it here, and where they sell the candles for the certain saints and all that. Well, my dad would go put tracks on there. <laughs> and the guys from the store, they'd go, Mr. Ortega, you can't do that. We told you. They'd actually bring the tracks back to him. My dad would do it again next time. And so my mom calls me one day. She goes, uh, you need to pray for your dad. He's, he's, he's crazy. He witnesses to everybody. And I, I get concerned. I go, Mom, do you want Dad the way he used to be? An alcoholic? Remember, Mom, he used to beat you? And we forget sometimes. We forget, and we want them the way they used to be. The way they used to be was evil. God changes the heart. God changes. And so the beauty here of changing. Now, Aeneas first was healed after eight years of being bedridden, now this woman, Dorcas, that everybody loves so much, uh, notice that it says here, and, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and, and many believed in the Lord. Sometimes God allows these things in my life and in your life to speak to others. Remember that your testimony uh, goes before you, dead or alive. <laughs> your testimony goes before you. My life, your life is a witness to others. We need to take heed. And sometimes things happen in my life I don't like. I'm going to give you the two scriptures again because we need to be reminded over and over. Isaiah 55 verse 8. Isaiah writes the words of God. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. Because I throw up my hand, Lord, why is this happening? I don't understand. And then in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together uh, for those who love God 
and who are called according to their purpose. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. And if I've ever counseled with you, I'm quick to share those scriptures with you. Hey, have you read Isaiah 55a? Yes, I have. Have you read Romans chapter 8, verse 28? Yes, I have. Well, you need to read it again. Now, I love sharing it, but then when I'm going through the fire, the Lord reminds me, Bob, go back to Isaiah 50. Oh, man, Lord, come on, man. I'm supposed to give that out. I'm not supposed to take it in. Yes, you are. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. My ways are not your ways. Be honest with yourself. Don't raise your hand. But how many times God has done things in your life? And at that moment, at that time, you're saying, I don't get it, Lord. Maybe two days later, two weeks later, two months, two years later. Okay, Lord, I know what you're doing. What did Job go through? Our brother Job, way back in the Old Testament, when he went through the things that he went through. His wife said, curse the God that you serve. Look at you, you're a mess. I can't imagine, I don't want to describe a boil, but I can't imagine a boil from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And the best you can do, he had a piece of pottery. That's all he did, to scratch it. To scratch it. God had a purpose. God had a reason. People turned to Christ because of Dorcas. People turned to Christ because of Aeneas. Let's conclude the chapter now, verse 43. So it was that he stayed there many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now, this is important to me. It should be important to you. The tanning business was not a popular business. You had to deal with dead animals. And this is a Jewish man called Simon. Simon was a tanner by trade, not a pleasant trade for the Jews. Tanning was working with uh, the, the skins of dead animals. Imagine the odors that were there. What about the laws in Leviticus? Yet Peter stays with Simon for days. How many days did he stay there? We're not told. But Peter's learning. Peter's taking it in. Jesus is going to use Peter in the next chapter. And the gospel goes to Cornelius' house. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Remember the story? And I'm going to give you some insight for next week. He sees all the food. And it's all Gentile food. It's not kosher. And what does Peter say? Lord, I can't eat that. I don't even know what pork bag ribs are, Lord. I can't eat that. I can't eat that plate of carnitas, Lord. I'm sorry, I can't. Hey, I've cleansed it. Eat it. Beautiful story. But here he's being prepared. He, he's at Simon the Tanner's house. Unheard of. But Jesus showed his disciples. Jesus showed his disciples. Let me give you a few verses here. Jesus showed the disciples by his witness. Jesus was not with the religious leaders. But he seemed to always hang out, listen, with sinners. In John chapter 4, he met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In Luke chapter 19, he ate at Zacchaeus' home. He was up in the sycamore tree, remember? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And he had dinner with him at his home. Unheard of. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus saw one man called Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. Eventually, this is Matthew. Jesus said to him, follow me. Listen, Levi did follow him. He was so moved by that. He made a great feast for Jesus at his home, a tax collector's home. And he invited Jesus. Jesus came to the home. But listen, who's there? We know that Levi's a tax collector, but at the feast, there were other tax collectors and then it says, other sinners. You read in Luke chapter 5, the religious sect, the scribes, the Sadducees, they were appalled. They were appalled that Jesus would be there. Wasn't Jesus all about going to the sinners? Again, didn't he go to Mary Magdalene? Didn't he go to the woman at the well? Didn't he go to you? Didn't he go to me? And I love that. It's not about the righteous. He's not about the religious sect. 
He's about the sinners. He's about the sinners. And I think it's important for us to, a lot of people right now, there's a lot of struggles. Why, why should I pray for the Muslims? Look what they're doing. Uh, listen, it's not all of the Muslims that are doing it. There's not all good Christians either. Remember that. But didn't Jesus die for them? I know ISIS is brutal and mean and probably demon-possessed. Uh, I mean, cutting off heads like crazy. But didn't Jesus die for them? That's the whole concept. That's the equation. Think about that. And if Jesus died for me, he died for you. He died for Peter. He died for Enos. Look how the gospel's going out there. You shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and then to Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Take heed to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Let's all stand and we'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the life of Saul of Tarsus. We're excited to see what you're going to do in and through his life. Lord, it's just the beginning. We know that he writes the majority of the New Testament, the epistles. I even believe he wrote the, the book of Hebrews. There are those that disagree. But Lord, I, I thank you for the life of Saul of Tarsus. I can't imagine when they saw him in person, he probably freaked them out. And so, Lord, as you went before him, you told Ananias, lay hands on him. Anoint him with oil. I have a ministry for this man. He's going to go to kings and magistrates. He's going to go to rulers. I have a work cut out for him. And so, Father, I believe our work is cut out here uh, in southern New Mexico. I believe our work is cut out uh, as we witness, as we testify. And, Lord, as the message goes out on the radio, as the message goes out on the CDs, and so, Father, open the doors. And we just thank you and praise you. We ask you to go before us now. In Jesus' precious name. Uh, Lord, bless the offerings. As you've given to us, we give back a portion. In your name we pray. Amen.